Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Scott Roloff will discuss, you know what you're paying for, healthcare, but you don't know what you're getting. Scott is the president of Integer Health Technologies. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Scott. Well, thank you, Taekwon. So for starters, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I'm the uh, president of Integer Health Technologies. And at Integer Health, we combine advanced analytics with medical expertise to quantify healthcare outcomes, which is something that no one else does. Our clients are health insurance companies, workers' comp insurance companies, and employers, anybody who pays for health care. And we work with health plans, wellness programs, and workers' compensation. What we do is we merge cost and quality into a single dollar value, and that allows us to calculate the return on investment, or ROI, on the health care dollars that our clients spend, as well as rank things like doctors and plans and programs. Last year, Public Risk, which is Prima's national magazine, published a case study on how we decreased the city of Fort Worth's cost by 23% using our analytics. So what's the problem in healthcare that you solve? Well, in healthcare, everybody knows what they spend for their healthcare. A health plan or a workers' comp program can tell you to the penny what they pay to doctors and hospitals for the claims. What they can't tell you, however, is what they get in return for those claims dollars. Today, we try to measure that return in terms of quality, which, of course, is a qualitative measure, not a quantitative one, and it focuses on things like what a doctor did or didn't do. Did the doctor follow clinical-based guidelines? Or did the doctor follow the HEDIS checklist? And the HEDIS checklist is just a series of things that a doctor should do in certain circumstances. For example, if the doctor seeing a female patient over a certain age, did he make sure she had a mammogram? Other quality measures are whether the patient liked the doctor or the healthcare experience. The input into that healthcare equation are those claims dollars. We need the output from the healthcare equation to be in dollars and cents too, so we can compare the two back and forth, and we need to measure what really matters. And that's the outcome to the patient. Did the patient get better? And if they did, how much did it cost and how long did it take? And that's the problem that we solve. We put a dollar and cent value on each healthcare outcome. And we can filter the results by diagnoses, doctors, networks, treatment patterns. For example, I can tell you who the best doctor is in a network for treating diabetes or who the best surgeon is for knees. But don't a lot of companies rank doctors and tell you who the best ones are? Taekwon, every insurance company and many other companies rank doctors. The question you have to ask yourself is what are they looking at to rank those doctors? And in all those cases, what they're doing is they're going back to those qualitative measures. Did the doctor follow clinical-based guidelines or evidence-based medicine? And that's just the treatment protocol that experts have said that a doctor should follow in a certain case. I know of one company that ranks doctors based upon the percentage of patients that they see with a particular diagnosis. So if a doctor sees a lot of patients with diabetes, they assume that that doctor is good at treating diabetes. Others go back to whether the patient likes the doctor the healthcare experience. At best, these are just proxies for what really matters, and that's that patient's outcome. As I said before, did the patient get better? And if they did, how much did it cost and how long did it take? These quality measures assume that if a doctor followed clinical-based guidelines or if uh, the patient liked the doctor or they saw a lot of 
patients with a certain diagnosis that they're going to be good at that. Well, maybe, maybe not. Why assume anything? Why not measure the actual outcome, whether the patient got better? That's what we do. But how? It depends upon who we're working with. We have two ways of quantifying a healthcare outcome, merging cost and quality into that single dollar value. The first is when we're working with employers that self-insure their health plans or their workers' comp programs, because if they're self-insured, they own that claims data. And in this case, what we do is we define a good outcome as the employee being at work. Then we take two different data sets and merge them together, the medical and the pharmacy claims and the employer's HR records, specifically around payroll and time and attendance. And what we do is we accumulate all the costs across the diagnosis for a patient, both their medical costs with medical and pharmacy claims and their medically related absence costs related to those claims to get and keep that employee at work. Now, you might ask, how do we get those absence costs? A lot of employers these days, they don't have sick days, but they have our PTO or paid time off days where they don't don't distinguish between a sick day and a vacation day. But what we do is we go into the claims and we spot all the claims related to a diagnosis. Then we take the dates of those claims and we juxtapose those against the employer's attendance records. We spot the medically related time off, and then we value that time off at either the employee's actual rate of pay or a normalized rate. So if we can see in the claims that an employee had a a hospital claim for a heart attack on a Tuesday, well, we're going to assume that that PTO day that they took on Tuesday was for the heart attack. And we also can use this particular method when we're working with workers' comp insurance companies and TPAs. Now, they're not going to have the employer's HR records to match up against those claims, but they'll have something almost as good, and that's going to be the indemnity payments paid to the employees while they're out injured. So in this particular case, our cost component are the medical and pharmacy claims and those medically related absence costs. And then our quality component are the absence costs because they straddle both cost and quality doing double duty because the quicker you got an employee better and back to work, the more effective the care was. A lot of times, however, we're not going to have those absence costs to match up against the claims. We're working with just a health insurance company, or we're looking at the dependents under an employer's health plan. In that case, we use just the medical and pharmacy claims to quantify the health care outcomes. We call it claims per healthy day. What we do is we go into the claims and we accumulate all a patient's claims for a particular diagnosis, say diabetes, over the course of a year. That's our cost component and the numerator in our claims per healthy day calculation. Then the algorithms will sift back through the claims, and they'll identify the patient's unhealthy days related to that diagnosis, for example, diabetes. And the unhealthy days are days spent in the healthcare system. For example, you're visiting the doctor, you're in the hospital, or you're just at home, but you're not able to function normally, all of which the algorithms can see in the claims. And those are the unhealthy days. We take those unhealthy days, subtract them from 365 days in a year, and that's our denominator and the quality component. We take our numerator, the claims over the course of the year, that's our, the numerator, and divide that by our denominator, the healthy days during the year, and we get claims per healthy day. You mentioned risk adjustment. What exactly is that? We risk adjust everything we do. If you ask any doctor why they cost more than another doctor, they will always give you the same answer because my patients are sicker, and sometimes they're right. Say you have two employees with identical back injuries. First employee is 20 years old and runs marathons on the weekends. The other employee is 60 years old, diabetic, obese, and works in a 
cubicle all day, even though they have identical back injuries, we know it's going to take longer and cost more to get that senior assistant better. So we have to adjust for that. Love the playing field and give doctors credit for taking care of those more difficult patients. So we have to assign our risk score. And there are a number of risk scoring systems out there. Some you can buy, some are open source. The ones that you can buy, however, tend to be a bit of a black box. So give a patient a risk score, but they won't tell you why. And for that reason, we like to use the open source systems because transparency is going to be very important. Once you run these analytics, you're going to want to take the results back to your insurance company, your TPA, your health system. And if everything's not completely transparent, they're not going to buy into the results. So we like to use the risk scoring systems. It's important that our risk scoring system be demographically appropriate to the population. So for employers, there are two open source risk scoring systems that uh, are good for uh, an employee population. The first one is called uh, the hierarchical condition categories. It was designed by the Department of Health and Health and Human Services for the Affordable Care Act marketplace. So if someone goes into the Affordable Care Act marketplace and buys insurance, the government will pay that insurance company more to insure that per- particular person the sicker that person is. Another one that's good for an employee population is called CDPS, designed by the University of California at San Diego, and it's used by a lot of the Medicaid programs around the country. And what these risk scoring systems do is they look at a person's age, their gender, their comorbidities, which are just other conditions they have that make everything more expensive, like asthma or diabetes, and we'll look at the prescription drugs that someone's on. For example, if we see a patient has a prescription for insulin, we know they're a diabetic, and then we assign them a risk score. Now, if we're working with a retired age population, these risk scoring systems aren't going to be demographically appropriate for that. In this case, we'll use a system that Medicare uses for Medicare Advantage plans, and it's called CMS HCC. And what it does is it'll assign a risk score, just like the other ones, to that person. And when a person goes into, a retired person goes into to buy a Medicare Advantage plan, the concept's the same as under the Affordable Care Act. The government, the Medicare in this case, will pay that insurance company more to insure that person based upon how sick they are. Now, one thing you can do is you can overlay these risk scoring systems with what's called social determinants of health. And social determinants of health is just the concept that someone's social circumstances will affect their health care. Two examples being salary and zip codes. So say you have an employee that's on a low salary and they're under a high deductible health plan where they have to pay for all the doctor's bills and all the hospital bills until they hit that high deductible amount. Well, what's going to happen is that employee might be likely to defer care because they're going to have to pay the full bill until they reach that high deductible amount. So they'll defer care. They won't go to the doctor when they have something minor. And those minor things might blossom into something that become very major and blow past that high deductible amount in total. Another one is zip codes. We have places in America called food deserts. You can't buy healthy food. If you can't buy healthy food, you end up buying more fast food than you should. If you buy more fast food, what's going to happen is you're going to get diabetes or obesity. And again, those are comorbidities. They make everything else more expensive. Not only do you have to treat the diabetes or the obesity, but it makes other things more expensive too because if you break your leg and you have diabetes, well, it's going to cost more than if you break your leg and you don't have diabetes. The other thing you have to do is you have to put things in their right buckets. If you're comparing doctors, you can't compare a primary care physician or a PCP to a surgeon. So you have to put them in their right buckets, and then you have to allocate to a doctor all the costs that that doctor is responsible for. 
not only their direct costs, but all their downstream costs, too, from their referrals. Go back to our example of the two employees that had the, uh, the bad back. Say the first employee goes to their primary care physician, or PCP. PCP sees them for 15 minutes, refers them on to a surgeon. Second employee goes to their PCP. This doctor doesn't refer them on to a surgeon, but has the employee come back multiple times, working with the employee to rehabilitate them without the cost of the surgery. We just look at the direct costs. That first PCP is going to look much better. They just saw the employee one time for 15 minutes. But if we look at all the costs that that doctor is responsible for, both their direct costs and their referrals, now the second PCP is going to look much better. They saw the employee more times, but they don't have that expensive surgery allocated back to them. Because if a doctor refers you to a bad surgeon or a bad specialist, that doctor has done a bad job. So by allocating all the costs back to a doctor, we're able to evaluate a doctor's referral patterns, and we can make suggestions when appropriate. A lot of times what we see is that a doctor is doing just fine themselves. They're just referring to the wrong specialist or the wrong surgeon, and that's a problem that's easy to correct. You mentioned a case study on how the city of Fort Worth used these analytics to drive down their costs by 23%. So how would you use these analytics to decrease costs while getting folks better care? When you can quantify a healthcare outcome, put a dollar and send value on each one, you can do all kinds of things that you couldn't do before to both drive down your costs while improving the quality of care. We talked a little bit about the first one. Now you can rank things based upon their outcomes. Who's the best doctor in the network for treating diabetes? Who's the best surgeon for knees? Are you getting better outcomes by sending your back patients to chiropractors or physical therapists? Everyone has case managers working with their high-cost claimants and their chronically ill folks. Now you can rank case managers based upon their outcomes they're getting for those patients, both overall and for each particular diagnosis. In workers' comp, you can do the same thing for your workers' comp adjusters. You can also do things to optimize your plan and network design. The best thing you can do if you can do it is you can include only the best doctors in your network or at least eliminate the worst ones. Now, whether you can do that or not is going to depend who you are. If you're an employer, you're not going to be able to go back to your TPA and ask them to change your, their provider network. But the TPA might be able to do that if its contracts with health systems allow it to. But an employer can still do a lot of things to optimize their plan and network. For example, they can stratify the network. They can tell folks, you can go to any doctor in this network you want to, but if you go to these better doctors that I know will cost less overall and get you better care, I'll eliminate or I'll decrease your co-pays or your out-of-pocket costs. They can, an employer can do the same thing with a high-deductible health plan. They can even pay folks to go to the, the better doctors by contributing to the employees' health savings accounts when they do so. You can also direct and steer care. And here there's a fundamental difference between health plans and workers' comp. In a health plan, you can tell folks who the better doctors are for them, but they can still go to whoever they want to go to. Not so in workers' comp. In 34 states, the workers' comp adjuster can direct care. They can tell that injured employee what doctor they have to go to see. But there's still a lot you can do in the health plan setting to get folks to those better doctors. Go back to the case managers working with the chronically ill folks and the high-cost claimants, and that's where most of your costs are going to be anyway. Those folks are looking to that case manager for guidance, for help. You can give a list of the best doctors for each diagnosis to those case managers that they can refer those folks to. You can also do the same thing for the physicians in the network, especially the primary care physicians or PCPs that are needing to make referrals to specialists and surgeons. Give a list of the best specialists and surgeons for each type of thing to those PCPs, and now they'll know who to refer to. 
And this can be particularly powerful when an employer has an employee clinic that's the first stop for all their employees. Now the PCP staffing that clinic will know who to refer to and get the best results for them. And you can also give a uh, portal on the Internet to the patients themselves where they can look up the best doctors. What about wellness programs? Every employer has them, and every wellness vendor has promised them fantastic returns. How can you use these analytics to calculate the true return on investment? You're right, Taekwon. Every wellness vendor promises fantastic returns, and they're all based upon metrics that the vendor themselves measure and spit back to the employer. But in baseball, we don't allow the pitcher to call balls and strikes. We have an umpire for that. And if you're an employer, you should be the one to decide whether your wellness program is working, not the vendor. We have an article coming out in the Journal of Total Rewards about how exactly how an employer can calculate their return on investment, or ROI, on their wellness programs. And in simple terms, it's this. For the employees participating in that wellness program, have their medical and pharmacy claims gone down under the health plan? Are they missing less work? If not, you're not getting any savings. What you want to do is you want to calculate how much those medical and pharmacy claims have gone down, how much their medically-related absence costs have gone down, and compare that to what you're paying the vendor. And that'll give you your return on investment. Anything else is going to be just fluff. For example, in a diabetes management program, the vendor is going to come back and tell you that the employee's A1C scores have gone down. Well, in the abstract, that's a good thing. It may mean that your health plan costs have gone down, but maybe not. It's only a proxy for those costs. What you have to do is measure the actual costs. And not surprisingly, what you'll find is in most cases, the ROI that you calculate is going to be nowhere near what the vendor promised you, especially for a new wellness program. And the reason is that the employees are going to self-select. Say you run the algorithms through your health plan and you find that you have 500 employees with diabetes. So you decide to have a diabetes management program. You start the program and 200 employees sign up. Which 200 do you think those are going to be? It's going to be the 200 folks that are already very conscientious about their diabetes. They're already managing it as best they can. Exhibit A being they were the first ones to sign up for the diabetes program when you started it. As a result, they're being so conscientious, there's not much room for them to improve. What you have to do is you have to go out and get those 300 folks that have diabetes that didn't sign up for the program to participate, and then maybe you'll start to approach that promised ROI. What are some of the other cutting-edge things that you're seeing out there? Well, one of the things that I've seen recently is in the workers' compensation space, and it involves the state of Ohio. Now, the state of Ohio is kind of unique. It's one of the few states that is a monopoly state for workers' comp, which means that if you're an employer in, in Ohio, you have to buy workers' comp insurance. But there's only one seller of that insurance in the whole state, and that's the state of Ohio itself. So the Bureau of Workers' Compensation in the state of Ohio is just a huge organization. And a few years ago, they started a pilot around knee injuries called the Enhanced Care Program. And what this pilot is doing is it's cutting out a lot of the red tape and getting injured workers in to see the doctor sooner and giving the doctor more flexibility in treating those, those injured folks. And they're seeing some really good results from this pilot, both in getting folks in to see a doctor quicker and then getting them back to work quicker at a lower overall cost. Thanks, Scott. Do you have any final thoughts? Taekwon, I would just come back to the beginning. You know what you're spending on health care. What you have to do now is quantify your, what you're getting in return for those health care dollars so you can compare the two back and forth, calculate your true return on investment on those dollars, and make smart decisions that will drive down your health care costs while improving the quality of care. 
when I talk about these analytics, a lot of feedback I always get is that it's so different than what we're doing in healthcare today. And that often reminds me of the quote from Henry Ford. He said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.